Good morning, and welcome to episode 704 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindberg of Grantland.com. How are you? All right. Did I say that we're brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com? I don't know, but it can never say it too much. No, we are. We are. We're proud to be. Mm-hmm. A great thing that we are. How are you? Okay. I'm waiting for news from Pluto. Okay. Don't know what that means. <laughs> Anything else going on? Get some cool pictures of Pluto today. Oh, can we talk about this email that Mark sent us about Merrill Hess? Sure. It's not an email show. No. Did this lead you anywhere? Did you follow up on it? I did, but I'm curious if you did. I have not had time yet. I plan to because right. it's interesting. So Mark emails, do either of you know the story of Merrill Hess? While thinking about the Pirates front office this morning, I was wondering how many people it took to run the club back in the 70s when I was a kid and the Pirates were great. I noticed that their front office staff included one Merrill Hess as assistant scouting director. I googled his name and came up with a hit at IMDb, since he is Joaquin Phoenix's character in the movie Signs. I also found this oddity at Baseball Reference. He leaks to his Baseball Reference page, and there is no information there. No birth date, no height, no weight, no numbers, no anything, except date of death, which is an odd single detail to have. So Mark says, is there a story there who is or was Merrill Hess? And how did he end up with a reference in a movie and a baseball reference page that records nothing but his death? Did he ever exist? And um, I uh, I won't be able to probably answer Mark's question because he probably already Googled and got as far as I did. But it is, uh, it is an interesting... Well, mainly what's interesting is that M. Night Shyamalan chose him to name his character after. So Hess... Uh, was had some sort of baseball career in the 50s, but not enough to make baseball reference, which suggests that what probably pl- went to spring training or something like that and got uh, associated with a club somehow. And Yeah, when you see this today, it's usually a player was drafted and then he gets a baseball reference page for that, but, but didn't he sign. didn't sign and didn't play. So yeah. this was pre-draft, so I don't know what the equivalent was, but yeah, maybe he was with the team and didn't end up playing. Yeah, so maybe signed and was injured immediately, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe, yeah, spring training. Like, it seems to me that spring training is a reasonable guess, likable guy, and he went to camp, got washed out and said, I need I need a job, and they let him sell hot dogs, and he rose his career. Maybe it rose. I don't know. I read his obituary, and... It is very slim on his pre-scouting director, assistant scouting director days. It took him four years. Well, it doesn't even say he played. His obituary says he began a career in baseball in 1953. So it's actually quite possible, and this is maybe going to end up being relevant to the topic that we're going to talk about today, but it may be possible that he never played. In fact, I might guess that he never played, that he just got a job with the Pirates somehow. Maybe he was in the mailroom. And within four years... He was the assistant director of scouting for the Pirates. And one, what's interesting about this is that he was the assistant director of scouting for the Pirates for 21 years, which means that he never became the director of scouting for the Pirates <laughs> or for anyone else. He, he became an assistant director, and that was it. He just stayed there. He was never the assistant director of player development. He was never a special assistant to the GM. He's the he Dwight Schrute of scouting. He was. He was the assistant director for 21 years, and his most prominent media appearance in that time was when he went to uh, prison, uh, to four Illinois prisons, to scout talent. And 
He said, uh, he was quoted by the AP, we're looking for ball players, and who knows, maybe some of them are behind the walls. Merrill Hess, assistant scouting director for the Pirates, said in a telephone interview from Pittsburgh, we realize that the outside world is not always amenable to giving employment to those who have offended it, but we're not that way. And uh, I don't know if they signed a player out of this. I couldn't find a follow-up in the brief thing, but I mean, even if they found somebody, it'd be difficult because they'd have to get him paroled because he's in prison. Right. Uh, so anyway, uh, so that's that was, I guess, the, the most news on him. Uh, but his biggest media appearance actually came much, much later. Uh, in 2010, when he was 83 years old, he lost his World Series ring. And a 11-year-old girl found it on the floor of a snack bar in a New Jersey ice skating rink. She immediately turned it in. And after much uh, snooping on the internet, searching on the internet, they found him. They found Merrill Hess. They found out that it was Merrill Hess's on Yahoo Answers. <laughs> wow, that's your go-to source. <laughs> uh, yes, I have much mocked Yahoo Answers as a baseball re- uh, reference so, uh, resource in my life. But she found Merrill Hess. They connected, and uh, he, he got his ring back. Um, and then he died two years later. Now, the so the obvious question is, well, is it just a coincidence that his name was used in signs? And it seems obviously not a coincidence. This is a player who, well, M. Night Shyamalan is fairly well associated with Pennsylvania, uh, more Philadelphia than Pittsburgh. Um, and so uh, it would be better if he were a Phillies assistant scouting director. But I still think that the geographic proximity is too similar to miss this is a story about a, a player a baseball player who flames out and then ultimately wins the world by hitting a thing with a baseball bat and the fact that there's both a baseball theme a pennsylvania connection and m night Shyamalan, who just always loves to be so super clever makes me think that it had to be uh intentional mm-hmm. and it makes you wonder why i i thought there must be some great Merrill Hess story that had him stick in M. Knight's mind. Yeah, but, and this was before uh, the, well before the losing the World Series ring. Yeah, oh yeah, well before losing the World Series ring, and I couldn't find anything that would rise to the level of memorability 30 years later. It's conceivable, although not in any way suggested or confirmed, that M. Night Shyamalan met him at like a club, you know, like a at a, you know, team day or something, maybe he signed a baseball, maybe they were friends, maybe if they probably, I'm sure that somewhere in his life, do I think this, do you think that there, how many, how many human beings would you estimate uh, it would take to connect M. Night Shyamalan with random Pirates front office guy from the 70s? I mean, friend of a friend, friend of a friend? Is that too close? Friend of a friend of a friend? If we didn't know about the character in Signs? Yeah, 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 just random, random pirates front office guy. How many connections do you think, or how many uh, chains, links in that chain on average? Four. Four? Oh, I think much fewer. Like, I bet you... I guess if they're both in Pennsylvania. If they're both in Pennsylvania, right. I would bet that a friend of a friend of a friend would be the average. Uh Uh-huh. And so, yeah, so it, it certainly isn't a stretch to think that maybe his dad and and uh, and Merrill went to you know church together or something together. I don't know. So uh, so we don't know why. It does, there's no obvious there's no obvious way in the record that Merrill has earned this. 
other than existing. However, uh, I'm going to, uh, just in my head, I'm going to write a narrative where Meryl Hess saved M. Night Shyamalan's kitten from a tree when he was, when M. Night was eight years old or something like that, and that he did earn it in a, ve- in a way that was personal and escaped not only the public record, but the obituary writers as well. The obituary writer does not mention that he is <laughs> the name of a character <laughs> inside. As it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Well, if anyone knows anything more about Merrill Hess, or if you're M. Night Shyamalan, email us at podcast at baseballperspectives.com. Uh, no? The Don't first, want to know more? Definitely the first part. Um, all right. Okay. You can email us, M. Night. Okay. All right. All right. And that's our show. No. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to talk about uh, Molly Knight's book, which came out today, mm-hmm. uh, Team Money Can Buy. Okay. You haven't read it, I assume. Nope. I think it was been, shipped to my New York address for some reason. Yeah, I've been with you. You haven't had time. I did read it, and one of the reasons I read it is because while I also don't have time, uh, I was so engaged by it that I read like 220 pages in an afternoon. Hmm. Uh, and so that's most of the book. It's very engaging. It's very crisp. There are good details on every page. There is wonderful access. And, uh, it's, uh, I don't know. It's frankly, it's a baseball book. Like I haven't really read a baseball book that was, uh, so lively uh, in a long time. So it's good. I recommend it. But I want to specifically talk about one of the central characters in it, Ned Coletti. Mm-hmm. And Ned Coletti is an interesting GM to talk about because he is actually arguably like you could almost make the case that he is as much of a baseball outsider as any stat head, any, you know, guy who came from Wall Street or whatever is, in a way, he didn't play. He huh. was never... He's like Merrill Hess. He was never in uniform. He was... Uh, his baseball background is... Well, actually, let me... Uh, there is an index of Ned Coletti references, and one of the references is baseball background up. So I'll just flip to page 39. He uh, he basically, some people know this, but he basically started as a press flack. He was a, the PR guy for the Cubs. Uh, so he went from, you know, I mean, one of the least baseball-oriented jobs in the entire front office to GM. And so in another scenario, he could have been, a, he could have been hailed by our types as a hero, as an outsider hero who came in and just worked his way up. Uh, despite not checking the, the traditional boxes of uh, baseball GM. Except that Ned Coletti was, in a lot of ways, uh, the most old-school GM uh, of his era and held on to uh, a kind of a pre-moneyball uh, resume longer than almost any team did. Uh, and so now that his career, you know, his career with the Dodgers as a GM is over, uh, and we, now that we have this book, in particular, that takes us deep inside it, we can sort of assess what the heck he was doing, why he was the GM, how he did as the GM, and whether there will ever be another GM like him. So, uh, and I don't know if we will, but that's what you could do if you read the book. I don't know if we will because Ben hasn't read the book. Mm-hmm. But I do want to tell you my three, the three favorite, my three favorite uh, Ned Coletti anecdotes in this book. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anecdote number one. Uh, on the first day of spring training before the 2011 season, when the Dodgers were neck deep in McCourt muck, 
Coletti addressed the team with a barn-burning speech he hoped would inspire them into battle. In the early 1500s, famed explorer Hernan Cortes set out for, from Cuba to conquer Mexico for the Spanish crown. Coletti said that, according to legend, when Cortes arrived on the shores of Veracruz, he ordered his frightened men to burn their ships as a means of giving them confidence and scaring the Aztecs, the message being that Cortes believed his men would so thoroughly dominate that when the job was complete, they would leave on their enemies' ships. Uh, so that's, uh, that's his big uh, inspiring speech. Do you know the problem with that speech? Mm-hmm. Well, they they killed lots of people? No. No. That, that is a problem. <laughs> what else? That's not why they burned the ships. The, they burnt, he burned the ships because his, he was afraid his cowardly men were going to sail away. Oh, he basically kind of ruined. <laughs> he forced them into a corner, essentially, where they couldn't flee. And it was not as a means of giving them confidence. It was basically a means of saying, well, you can fight for me or you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And so then, so that's the big problem. The secondary problem is that, I'm going to keep reading now, Three years later, Coletti sat the Dodgers down on the first day of spring training for his annual pep talk. He told the same story, (laughs) only this time he got mixed up and replaced Cortez with Alexander the Great. Players looked at each other in disbelief. When Coletti left, the room erupted in laughter. Within weeks, the guys had t-shirts made that said, Burn the ships on the front. with ATG for Alexander the Great <laughs> on the back. During the 2014 season, it was not uncommon to hear players yell, burn the ships before taking the field. What Coletti didn't know was that Cortez didn't burn his ships as a motivational tool. He did it so his terrified men couldn't retreat. <laughs> I wonder how many players were present at both of those pet talks. There's well, a lot of turnover these days. It depends. If this was a whole org meeting, yeah. which there's, that's the one time of year when you have an entire org meeting, then probably a hundred or so. Uh-huh. If not, probably like I don't know what what would you guess four? Yeah, but enough. If All you really need is is one, <laughs> one who remembers and can tell the others. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Although on the other hand, I talked to a lot of baseball players lately, and I don't. They're not. I don't feel like they'd be that into my Cortez <laughs> history lesson. Uh-huh. So I'm looking. Let's see, Juan Uribe was there for both d gordon was there for both uh-huh. probably unless he he might not have started the year andre ethier was there for both matt kemp was there for both clayton kershaw was there for both mm, so a good plenty. a good number mm-hmm. yeah plenty. chad billingsley probably there for both mm-hmm. so yeah plenty kenley jansen might have been there for both so that's one and i don't ideally we'd talk about what the lesson of that story is uh, I don't know if there is a lesson lesson to that story. <laughs> be a better speaker, or maybe not. Maybe it's better for them to have that shared in joke. Maybe he did it on purpose. Yeah, they got T-shirts I mean, out of it. They got a team rallying cry out of it. It worked, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you do. You sort of do want your player, like you know that you're as a boss. You know your players are going to. Uh, they're going to find something to set you apart from them, and to I don't know dislike you everybody hates their boss at some point right and so if you can do it in a way that is totally benign and like loose and casual and just kind of makes you look a little bit like a goof like it's 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 actually quite good to play the fool sometimes mm-hmm. as long as you know in in the right situation so uh so yeah maybe he's a genius yeah good all right so ned coletti executive of the year <laughs> all right wow Hernan cortez 
gets his own separate entry in this. He gets an uh, index entry. Index, yeah, <laughs> between between Stan Conti and Jim Crane. Hmm. All right, story number two: When the Giants won the World Series in 2010, Ned Coletti, the front office, the GM of the Dodgers, cried with joy. Okay. And of course, it, Coletti spent a long time with the Giants. The Giants, as an organization, had never won a World Series in San Francisco during his time there. It was a significant. It was a hugely significant time for the city, for the organization, for the you know clubhouse attendant who had been there since, uh, or the clubhouse manager who'd been there since their first year, uh, for the announcers who'd been there for twenty years, for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And for Ned Coletti, and I don't have a, but I can also see that it's something that maybe. I don't know that I don't know. Do you think that it matters? Does it matter that your GM doesn't have a bloodthirsty hatred of division rival? Does it matter at all? I think it would be hard to have that because you've got to talk to them and work with them, and there's a collegiality among front office people and GMs a lot of the time. There's a little GM fraternity. They all experience the same challenges and the same criticisms and they have to help each other out in certain ways while also trying to beat each other so i don't think there's usually that much animosity among teams unless there's a hack or something in which case maybe but otherwise i don't think most people who work for teams have the same just emotional reaction that fans do in that sense they might have it as you're saying to the success to the winning but not the anger uh uh-huh. players though do i mean players hang out together off the field they have friends they've known each other there's professional courtesy they go to each other's bowling tournaments and all that sort of stuff but also they as you know as we see in other stories in this book most notably the pool jumping scene uh in arizona they do also hate each other and we ex- i mean they all like almost all the things you said about Front offices also apply to teams. They face the same criticisms. They have the same jobs. They know what each other's going through. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are there are times when they hate each other. I mean, when something, some action precipitates it. If there's some kind of beanball war going on or something, but there are division rivals who don't hate each other. I think you see them talking to each other on the bases and before the game and that sort of thing. So I think it kind of flares up from time to time. Yeah, and. This was a team that Coletti actually helped put together. Specifically, they were his guys. They were guys he drafted. A lot of those guys were guys that he was involved. He was in the draft room when they picked him, or he was in the meetings probably when they were developing him. This might be a special circumstance. It also feels like a little bit of a special circumstance in the other way, though, because it's the Giants and the Dodgers. It's not like it's the Giants and the Padres or the Giants and whatever other team Coletti might have, could have come from. Uh, it's not the Giants and the Cubs or the Dodgers and the Cubs. It's the Giants and the Dodgers. But I say good for you, Ned Coletti. Mm-hmm. You're a human. Sure, even, yeah. Even though some people say you're not. <laughs> I see nothing wrong with that. I don't even think it's surprising or even all that rare. All right. Last one. This is my favorite story in the book. My favorite story of any kind in the book. The Dodgers had a uh, had bullpen issues. They had, uh, this was 2014. You remember last year. Yeah. They had spent a ton of money on their bullpen. They seemed like they had they had like five former closers and a closer in their bullpen. Blue Shield yet, of California. Blue Shield of California, right? And yet it was it turned out to be horrible, a horrible unit. Uh, a a good team in many ways undone as the year went on by their bullpen, a two hundred and seventy million dollar team 
uh, with one of the worst bullpens in the league. And so uh, at the trade deadline, they were trying to get Joaquin Benoit. Um, and so I'll, I'll read some, some parts here. Coletti had come so close to trading for Joaquin Benoit in July that San Diego's front office thought it had a deal. Benoit was pitching great. He had a great year for San Diego last year. He'd been dominant for years uh, and was dominant that year. Um, and he was, I think, signed for one more year. And so as a guy who had proven he had the psychological medal to handle the ninth inning, Benoit remained on Coletti's radar. When the Chris Perez and Brian Wilson signings blew up and he knew the bullpen would be a liability in October, he tried to deal for Benoit at the deadline. But the Dodgers analytics department thought it was a bad idea. The 37-year-old Benoit's shoulder was on the verge of exploding, they argued. It was just a matter of time. And Coletti had gotten the Dodgers' bullpen into this mess by overpaying for former closers. If Benoit did get injured, Los Angeles would still be on the hook for over $10 million, plus whatever prospects they gave San Diego. Had they learned nothing from recent history? Coletti disagreed with their assessment of Benoit, perhaps because he knew he would be blamed for failing to trade for reinforcements who could shore up the bullpen. Stan Kasten, who was Coletti's boss, May have been in the game for a long time, but he had shown a willingness to listen to the opinion of the new school stat heads and embraced the idea there was no such thing as too much information. He sided with the geeks, and the deal was nixed. Padres officials were left with the impression that Coletti couldn't pull the trigger because he didn't have room in a bullpen already crowded with veteran relievers he couldn't cut. So the embattled GM made no moves at the deadline and told reporters he felt good about his club. And then, first postscript, the Dodgers analytics department was proven right immediately. Benoit reported shoulder soreness two weeks after Coletti had tried to trade for him. He pitched five seasons in the last seven, uh, five innings in the last seven weeks of the season. All right. Hmm. So then you remember the postseason, right? right? They had no bullpen. Bullpen, uh, when they left Kershaw in too long uh, because they had no bullpen, Kershaw got hit. When they pulled Granky and let the bullpen have it, the bullpen got hit. Everything came down in a lot of ways to that bullpen. And so uh, on the flight back, from Los Angeles to Los Angeles from St. Louis. He laid into one of the employees who he believed had blocked the trade. Thanks for having my effing back on Benoit, he was overheard saying to the man. The nerds had been right, but in that moment, it didn't matter to Coletti. Had he traded for Benoit, he could have said he had done something to try to help the bullpen mm -hmm. and could blame the failure on the club's bad injury luck. Uh, so I think that's a good anecdote. Yeah, because he was widely criticized for not having done something yes. at the time. And so you can kind of understand from his perspective why he would have wanted to have done something even if the something hadn't worked out, which is maybe a reminder that when we talk about certain GMs who are trying to save their jobs or their GMs, their jobs are in danger, and we wonder sometimes whether... They are acting with the club's best interests in mind. So maybe if he had gotten this review of Benoit from his analytics people who were right in this case, and if he had had the power to to push it through anyway, if he hadn't been overruled, then he would have been doing it for his own benefit, really, more so than the teams. And that must happen sometimes. Yeah. Beware of GMs trying to save their jobs. One more thing I want to say, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit. When, during discussions for, uh, with Clayton Kershaw for his extension, uh, the new owner's bunker had been open for two business days when it became the setting for the biggest contract offer in American sports history. After Coletti led Kershaw down the tunnel for his impromptu sit-down with ownership and his agents, Coletti learned that he wasn't needed for anything else. That'll be all, Ned, he was told. <laughs> 
The door closed. Despite being the team's general manager, Coletti was shut out of the conversation. His loss of power was an open secret in the clubhouse. So this is what I want to talk about lastly with him. Coletti is, like, like we said, he, was, he had a very unconventional resume uh, for a GM, and he, made, he, he did not have the authority that a playing career might impose on, uh, might, uh, might give to you. He didn't have the authority that a thick statistical background might give you. He was a guy who got promoted because he was good at his job every step of the way. He gave, something about him made people confident about him, uh, about his ability to do the job, about his ability to lead. He was, uh, there are, I read the sort of embarrassing parts, but there are also parts where you go, yeah, I can see it. I can see why you'd see this guy as a, as a, as capable of leading an organization. And he's still there. He's the senior advisor to the president, right? Which might just be kind of a, maybe they just kind of created a position for him, but probably not. They must uh, think he's, he does something, book, right? The book strongly implies that they just created a position for him. He's going to be in the broadcast booth next year. Uh-huh. Okay. So, so he's in a lot of ways, he's the equivalent of the late round draft pick who doesn't have the tools, who's not tall and projectable, who doesn't throw hard, who's not particularly athletic, who doesn't come from a baseball lineage and has to earn his promotion every step of the way with performance. He's the guy who's 24 and in high A because nobody's invested anything in him and he's hitting 379 with, you know, a 685 slugging percentage and still we're like, yeah, well, you know, he's old for his level. And, and like, you just don't want to believe in him. And he has to earn it every step of the way. And he did. He earned it from a job that is absolutely not on the, uh, the list of answers to how do I become a GM. It, the answer to that is not become a PR guy. Mm -mm. Uh, and yet he earned his way from that all the way to the top of the, uh, you know, one of the premier organizations in the game. And ultimately, I don't know if his failure to do the job better or to keep his job uh, is, uh, is a vindication for uh, the idea that you should come from a traditional background. Uh, perhaps he would have been taken more seriously by new ownership or by everybody, by you and me, I don't know, if he had... Uh, had some of those boxes that he could check off that we expect from our GMs. Mm -hmm. Or uh, maybe, in fact, uh, those boxes turn out to be really important. Maybe the fact that he wasn't very good at his job. Maybe he made bad moves because uh, he didn't have those tools at the end of the day. I'm not really sure. I don't know what the lesson of Ned Coletti is. I don't think he was a very good GM. The Peter principle? Uh, yeah, it could. <laughs> and it, it, might, it might actually just be the Peter. I mean, what I described is basically the Peter principle. Right. And that's what happens to most of the non-toolsy, low-round draft picks who uh, earn their promotions every step of the way. is Normally they hit AA or AAA, or they get uh, into the majors, and it turns out they're quad-A guys. But you know, most of them do hit their level of their own incompetence. Uh, and maybe that's, all, maybe that's all we're talking about, is this is a guy who just got promoted until he couldn't do it anymore. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't think he was a very good GM, and I'm not sure why he wasn't a very good GM. And uh, that's it. That's my whole story. All right. I look forward to reading the book. I look forward to reading any book. I haven't opened a book since I got here. I miss books. Mm. All right. Yeah. By the way, we I don't think either of us really saw the Home Run Derby last night. I watched a tiny bit of it in between being out of the house. But in the one glimpse that I got of it, and I know that 
it was uh, very well received. The new format spiced it up, added some sort of excitement to it, which was lacking before. But in the one moment that I was watching, the batting practice pitcher or the, the home run derby pitcher was a guy named Bob Tewksbury, and he was throwing to Josh Donaldson, and he was a former hitting coach who helped Josh Donaldson become Josh Donaldson. But Bob Tewksbury was spelled T-E-W-K-S-B-A-R-Y. So you're saying that there's another Bob <laughs> There's Tewksbury another Bob Tewksbury in there baseball. Two, there are two <laughs> dot Bob Tewksbury's in baseball with one, one letter different. It is not a name you run into in non-baseball situations very not often. Not at all. It's very strange. It's like a video game character created to get around a player not being in the Players Association or something. It's it's like a knockoff Bob Tewksbury. Yeah, I enjoyed that. And 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 he also was a wait. He was he pitched to Donaldson. He pitched to Donaldson. Yeah. So he he also throws strikes. Yes. At a slow speed. Yeah. <laughs> like Bob Dukesbury did. Mm-hmm. They're basically the same pitcher. Pretty much. Okay. So podcast at baseballperspectus dot com. We will do an email show one of these days very soon. And you can join the Facebook group at facebook dot com slash groups slash effectively wild and support our sponsor. The Play Index by going to BaseballReference.com and using the coupon code BP to get the $30 price on a single season subscription. We will be back soon.